announcements. Our five-day retreat at the beautiful Garrison Institute upstate in Garrison, New York, over Labor Day weekend, September 1st to 5th, with the wonderful teacher Jessica Moray and Kathy Cherry. And uh, I'll also be there rambling about this and that. So those of you who feel like uh, joining us, all the information's on the website, Dharma Punks with an XNYC. And support the work of your Dharma Punks New York Buddhist pastor, which is me. The Venmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC and the PayPal buttons on the website. Everything I do is offered entirely by donation. There's never a charge. We're talking about what other people think about you. Oh my goodness. What a scary topic. What other people think about us. How important are these thoughts? Why they cause such suffering? What kind of situations is it worth reflecting on how we are perceived by others and the times that these thoughts are not only not useful, but are particularly unskillful. So I hope that's a topic that you will find of some interest. And if it's not, I'll try again next week with another topic. And then after that, with yet another topic. And then the following week after that, there'll be another topic. So that's the way it goes here. So settle in, relax. You don't have to do anything for a while. And then when it comes time to do anything, the only thing you'll be asked to do is to relax and meditate. So that's not very hard either. So wonderful teaching of the Buddha, the Salatha Sutta, very famous, known as the two darts teaching. This teaching goes something like this. I'm not going to be able to quote it uh, off the top of my head because I'm not one of those Buddhists who can quote verbatim. I can certainly give you the gist of the teaching, and then you can look it up online. It's Sutta Central and other uh, polycanon sites. But it goes like this. The Buddha teaches when a normal person has a painful experience, they become distraught with self-pity, and they seek to escape it by the pain, by seeking sensual pleasures, and they become obsessed. And then they start thinking all kinds of self-pitying thoughts when they can't escape the pain. And so the Buddha says we experience two kinds of suffering. The first is the original pain of the getting shot by the dart, which was, by the way, a weapon of choice in the Buddha's time. <clears throat> and then the second was all the thoughts and stories we add on to painful experiences. The Buddha teaches then that we fail to understand that there's another way of responding, which is, he says, the wise person after a difficult, painful event in life, say we get broken up with or fired or we don't get a job we want or uh, friends don't invite us to a gathering or uh, some thing we've been trying to 
do uh, falls apart. The Buddha says the wise individual has the same painful initial experience, but the self-pity and the desperate craving for short-term sensual pleasures doesn't follow it. For example, he says they feel the first distress, which is just this inevitable, ugh, you know, uh, initial emotional and physical uh, gut response. But they don't shoot themselves with the second arrow of self-pity uh, and turning it into a story of um, what's wrong with me. And the Buddha goes on to say, this is, in summary, the difference between the wise and the naive, or the people who are spiritual and the people who are not spiritual, which is this ability to experience painful events without adding a story that causes even more suffering. And that, in a nutshell, is part of or lies at the very core of tonight's uh, topic. Now, let's cut 2,500 years later. Uh, the Buddha lived 2,500 years ago, roughly so. But in the 20th century, a great American psychologist was a man by the name of Albert Ellis, and he was a major figure in cognitive behavioral therapy. And Albert Ellis had this idea of why we experience emotional pain and disappointment in life. And it was called his ABC theory uh, of, I think it was suffering or distress. And you'll note, as I tell, I explain it, it's eerily similar to what we just discussed about the Buddha, which is in Ellis's ABC theory, A is the actual event. So, for example, an actual event could be being blamed for something we didn't do at a job or uh, not getting chosen for a play if we're an actor or um, uh, the example that Albert Ellis gives is you walk down the street, you see somebody you know who you're friendly with, you wave and they don't wave back or smile at you. So that's the actual event. B is the beliefs or the interpretations we add on to that experience. So A is the event in life, and B is how we interpret the events in life, the stories we tell in our mind, our thoughts that follow. And then C is the consequences, whether we suffer or we don't. So in his example, Albert Ellis says, suppose you're walking down the street, you see somebody you're friendly with, you wave, smile, and they don't wave back, they don't even look your way hardly. One belief or interpretation could be, well, what the heck is going on? I'm so friendly with that person and they're not even bothering to return my nice wave. They're not willing to smile or say hello. They're just treating me like I'm chopped liver and walking by. And that interpretation causes a lot of suffering because it makes the experience about ourself. It's like, what's the matter with me? Why is it this person isn't being friendly to me? What did I do? But Ellis says, suppose instead of that interpretation, one would think, oh, I guess they didn't see me. Maybe they were lost in thoughts, or maybe the sun was in their eyes, or maybe they had so much going on and they were in such a hurry that they just didn't see me wave at them. Now, that 
interpretation leads to no suffering. We just move on with our day, we think nothing more about it, and our life is in no way any worse for it. So Alice said, interestingly, and we now see more and more clinical studies that back this up, which is that Albert Ellis says it's not so much the actual events in life that matter, it's the way we interpret those actual events, the events, the stories, the beliefs, the thoughts that we add in the aftermath. That's where the real pain and suffering is. Interestingly, the Buddha said the same thing, said the first noble truth in life, there are painful events. We grow old, we become sick, we die, we might uh, become separated from people we care about, we might be stuck with people we don't like, and those are painful events. They're universal, they happen to everyone. But the real suffering, the Buddha said, is not those inevitable universal experiences, but the way we respond to them. Some people immediately make it a personal front. Why me? Why am I always being dumped in relationships? Why am I always being uh, mistreated at work? Why am I always being picked on by my friends? Why am I? So we turn universal transpersonal experiences into a story about ourselves. And that's where all the suffering begins to become, to build and become eventually insurmountable. Interestingly, again, let's, let's explore that theme even a little bit more in the work of uh, Gilbert and Killingsworth at Harvard and their famous study. They found out that in people are not so much happy or unhappy with the actual experiences in life, their mood and their levels of joy or distress actually has to do with how much they are not eventually paying attention and they start thinking about themselves. So again, the way we respond to events in life is more important in many ways than the actual things that happen. And that's one of the core foundations of almost all of the Axial Age religions that came about 2,500 years ago, not just Buddhism, but Taoism and some of the early Jewish prophets and so forth. This realization that suffering doesn't come from external, but the way we interpret the events that happen. Now, Albert Ellis noted that the interpretations that cause suffering are largely based on irrational, emotional beliefs about ourselves. And these beliefs are so ingrained, they almost become uh, uh, unconscious. And uh, in fact, there's a whole circuit that is very involved, the medial circuit of the frontal lobe, which is directly linked to the amygdala, the fear center of the brain. We'll be talking more about the amygdala and its role. But Albert Ellis gave a list of interpretations that we add to life's experiences that always cause pain and suffering. The first is, 
I must be a highly successful person or I am worthless. A second irrational belief is individuals must act in ways that I approve of or they are bad people. Three, bad things happen to me more than they happen to other people. And four, I have the approval of, I must have the approval of as many people as possible, or I will be a lesser person. I'm not a good person unless people approve of me. Now that he said was the biggest cause of suffering, this desire to be approved of by everyone. It would be nice to get everyone's approval for all our choices. It'd be nice if everybody loved this checkered shirt or the fact that I'm scruffy these days and my yet another futile attempt probably to grow a beard. It would be nice if everybody approved of everything I did. But guess what? That would be an irrational belief if I added that onto times when people don't approve, because it's impossible. It is absolutely impossible to not have encounter regularly disapproval. And if we do try to get everybody's approval or well wishes or positive regards for everything we do, it will lead to disappointment. And it will only validate our deepest feelings of guilt and shame, because it is not possible to get a wide array of people always to approve of everything we do. And so that is the, for Ellis, the single most uh, regular, uh, constant source of emotional distress. I personally experienced it too. And there was a time, uh, roughly 25, 26 years ago, where I remember sitting with a, I believe it was another Buddhist teacher and complaining about somebody who I was very nice to, who wasn't very nice to me back. And then uh, there was another case of somebody who I thought was acting in a way that was pretty um, needlessly caustic in some way. I don't remember the particulars. It was a long time ago. But I remember the teacher saying something along the lines of, did you ever notice that if you didn't care what people thought about you, how much happier you would be. And it was at that point that I realized that caring about what everybody thinks about me, not only was it a large source of suffering, but two, that it wasn't something that everybody did all the time, that there were people who actually managed to detach from that line of thought. And I can tell you that over many years of practice, I now do not linger in that constant uh, concern about how I am perceived by others. That doesn't mean that I don't care what other people think. There's a group of people that are very important to me that are wise spiritual figures that I turn to 
for input and for uh, insight into choices I make. And if ever there's any interpersonal conflict, thankfully, there's very little of that in my life. But if there was, I would, I always go to this group of people. But I'm not looking for outside of this group of wise spiritual friends, this kind of validation uh, that people, especially who have a wounded sense of self, are constantly seeking validation from everyone as a way to compensate for a wounded sense of self. So the psychologists, famous psychologists like the evolutionary psychologist Robin Dunbar, or the social neuroscientists like Gene Desetti and John Cacioppo, noted that our brains are essentially social organs that we survive due to our ability to bond and create safety in numbers. As a species, we got our massive survival advantage because we could connect in positive ways, organize our behaviors in tandem. We could hunt in groups. We could forage in groups. We could care for children in an organized way. We could migrate in, in groups. So we weren't vulnerable to being picked off by coyotes or, um, or I don't know, whatever predators we had back then. So the durability of our tribal bonds was key to our survival. And as many evolutionary psychologists point out, if we were kicked out of our small tribes, the clans of about eight or nine people we traveled with, we would certainly die. Because the only thing that gives us a survival advantage is our ability to bond. Human beings don't have shells to protect us from attack. We don't run faster than a lot of other predators. We can't fly. We can't suddenly dig holes into the earth and squirm into them like voles and um, some other land animals. We are completely dependent to survive based on our ability to have friends, people who will have our back. That is what it lies at the core of the human experiment. So for a long time, guess what? Monitoring what other people thought about us was vital. If anyone in your small group of eight people decided you weren't pulling your weight or wasn't trustworthy or had done something unforgivable and convinced the other members of the tribe that you weren't worth the effort of being in the clan and you got kicked out, you would certainly die because no other clan would accept us. And so it was vitally important to know what other people thought about us. And so, as we'll see, there's different regions of the brain that are hardwired to care a lot what other people think about us. That's part of being a human being. In the hunter-gatherer village, uh, as Robert um, Wright, uh, another evolutionary psychologist, points out, in a hunter-gatherer village where there would be maybe eight or nine other adults, if, we've, if we became concerned that we offended someone, that person would live maybe 20 feet from us and we'd see them 10 times a day. So we could go directly to them and see how they felt about us and work it out. If we had, you know, forgot to 
carry their pelts of fur or whatever the heck we were doing back then. But in the modern world, there's this evolutionary mismatch. We're still in brains that care constantly what everyone thinks about us. But in the modern world, now we see hundreds of strangers each day. If you should take a public transport or if you walk down a city street or if you go into a um, Trader Joe's or Whole Foods, you're probably going to see in that day 20 times more people than our ancestors would see in their entire lifespan. So while nowadays when we sit in a subway car and there's someone staring at us, or if we're in an office and somebody shoots us an inscrutable look, we still have the ancient concerns of, oh no, did I do something wrong? What's the matter with me? And these feelings are now thoroughly outdated. Today, if you're in a clan of seven people at work and they decide they don't think you're pulling your weight, you just get another job. You don't die. You don't wind up being eaten by coyotes. But in our, for hundreds of thousands of years, if other people decided we were not pulling our way or there was something wrong with us and kicked us out of the tribe, we would die. So the brain hasn't caught up with the fact of how safe we are in the world now. That's one of the key insights of evolutionary psychology. We are still concerned, overly concerned, of how other people regard us, even though today there's very little consequences if somebody doesn't like the shoes you bought or your, you know, the, your perspectives on the Russia-Ukraine war, or you can find connections and support. So the feelings are of little value. They're unpleasant and they last way too long. The fastest circuits of the brain, in fact, the face processing area, which is called your fusiform gyrus, also connects to the emotional fear center of the brain, the amygdala, which, and that's part of the reading of other people's facial expressions and body language. That's what lights up when you meet somebody for the first time and you're trying to read and get a, a sense of who they are by looking at their facial expression as you talk. And that triggers a process called neuroception, where we're constantly, very quickly trying to sum them up. And if we come up with a negative uh, read of that person, if we think they're looking at us in a weird way, or if there's somebody we know, but we, their face betrays a kind of distant, cold, or unenthusiastic look, there's this fast process which begins to create a feeling of being unsafe. And this is supported by numerous other circuits in the brain. For example, Matthew Lieberman shows that not just in the amygdala and the fusiform gyrus, but in the anterior cingulate cortex, which is the hub of the pain center in the brain, that area is constantly looking for any signs of social rejection. 
So the only thing that triggers it is physical pain and social rejection. So Lieberman points out that the ancient regions of the brain that tell us when our bodies are you know, injured or ill are the exact same region that also creates that horrible gut feeling when we feel someone is judging us or is not on our side or is uh, becoming cynical or sarcastic or is not liking something about us. And then on top of that, brains also evolved guilt circuits, according to Petra Michael and Thomas Mindel. And that also involves the amygdala with another region of the insula. So there's all these different regions of the brain responsible for caring about and creating bad, unpleasant internal gut feelings in a response to when we experience any form of rejection, disapproval, disappointment, neglect, not caring, all of those nonverbal experiences trigger fast automatic feelings. So we call those gut feelings the actual event. You might recall at the beginning of this talk, I said there's the actual event, but then there's the interpretation. There's nothing, the Buddha says, there's nothing we can do about the feelings. They're too deeply hardwired. And as the Buddha said in the Paticca Samuppada, as also in the, the Root Sutta, he says, everything starts with feelings and feelings come about before thought. So there's nothing we can do about that feeling of, ugh, that dorsal dive where everything feels to plummet into our stomach or that, that, that sympathetic charge of what the hell is going on? Why are these people responding in this way? There's nothing we can do about those internal, nonverbal, fast, automatic feelings. But, but we can allow the feelings to arise and pass without adding the story. That's what gives us the great ability to diminish and reduce the amount of suffering. We can feel the discomfort, the disappointment, the sadness, the anger, all of that initial embodied response but we don't have to add on top of it the stories. Now, everybody comes into spiritual practice believing that there's nothing they can do about the story, that the story they feel happens so quickly right after the feeling or in conjunction with the feeling. They said, how can I possibly, uh, if I go through a romantic breakup or if I'm online dating and somebody stops responding to me or ghosts me, how can I not have that self-pitying experience? The answer is you can feel the feelings which are embodied, but the story, what's the matter with me? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always the one that's getting rejected? Why is dating so hard for me? All of the 
personalizing self narratives or self referential ideations we add are not actually inevitable. They're not inevitable. The entire point of mindfulness practice is to learn to be with the actual internal experience of life without adding in the beliefs and interpretations too quickly that lead to all the suffering. The Buddha notes, and I believe this is very, very uh, important, that it's essential before we add any interpretations or stories that we, be, we always carve out room for the experience, what he calls feelings, Vedanas, to arise and pass. If we try to interpret negative experiences right after they happen, those old medial circuits of the brain with a direct connection to the amygdala will light up. We're going to make it about ourselves, and we're going to add on this story that's going to make suffering all but inevitable. There was this famous study with college students who failed their midterms, and they found that they broke it down into groups of college students that even though they failed the midterm, they passed the test versus those who after failing the midterms would go on to flunk the course and even quit after failing the midterms. So what was the big difference between these two groups? Well, it turns out that the people who immediately interpreted the experience and made it about themselves would invariably quit the course. But those who would not immediately interpret it and eventually just decide, oh, it wasn't my fault. I didn't, I didn't study enough I, or I didn't, you know, maybe the textbook was too dense or the teacher wasn't very good, but I'm simply going to just keep trying. Those were the ones who wouldn't wind up failing and would move on happily in the class. So the difference is one, delaying interpretation, because the sooner we interpret experience after it occurs, the more likely we are to make the experience about ourselves, And thus, as we know from Ellis, Albert Ellis, the more likely we are to suffer, exactly as the Buddha taught. So the Albert Ellis added a fourth uh, point to the ABC model. A being the actual event, B being the beliefs or interpretations, C being the consequences. But then he said there's a possibility of adding D, which is disputing or challenging the ways we, in, we normally interpret experiences in such a way that we create better consequences for ourselves. And this is simply put, Interpret the experiences in ways that are not personal. Always reflect the moment, if we have to start thinking about it, reflect on how this experience is happening to countless others, and therefore it's not about me. Even whether we get fired from a job, whether there's a, people who live above us who are loud and noisy, whether that we have to pay more taxes than we expected, maybe um, no matter what is happening to us, 
it is happening to countless other, other individuals. In essence, it's not personal. The making it personal is what adds all the suffering. So what Ellis suggests is writing out our interpretations, our initial interpretations, taking a break and then noting how those initial interpretations, which are always taking it personally and always there's other characteristics, not just making it about herself, but overgeneralizing and catastrophizing, it's gonna get worse, overgeneralizing, this is the way things always turn out and, and all that. Um, he said, write out your initial interpretation and then take a break and then one, ask if it's objectively accurate. Would everybody who saw the same event that occurred agree with your interpretation? And two, is your interpretation helpful for you? Does it encourage resilience and self-compassion? Does it make you feel uh, any less or more hopeful? So even if an interpretation may be accurate, if it's not helpful, it's not worthwhile because there are countless accurate interpretations. But if, if we should choose an interpretation that not only is objectively accurate in that other people outside of ourselves will see the experience in the same way we do, but also the interpretation should be useful. It should be an interpretation that in some way encourages resilience and perseverance. And if it doesn't, in what way is it a useful or helpful or in any way uh, workable interpretation? So Ellis suggested after we write down our initial interpretations and we, if we note that they're not necessarily objectively accurate or they're not helpful, then summon in our minds, as opposed to the inner prosecutor, the person that pops up and always tells us how we're, we're fucked, excuse my language, and how things are always going to turn out poorly and how uh, we're unlovable, summon in our minds, an inner defense attorney who's going to undercut the, uh, all the, the charges of our inner prosecutor and instead will remind the jury, which is our consciousness, of all the reasons why this is not about us. It's not anything we've done wrong. And in fact, this happens to countless other people and that we have every reason to continue on in our journey. So it's important again to remove the sense that this is personal, to add, to dispute the interpretations, and to three, have Kalyanamita, which is a core group of people that we do turn to for insight if we think maybe we've done, we've made a mistake, or maybe someone might have a legitimate complaint about us, or if we feel a sense of guilt, don't listen to your thoughts about it, because due to negativity bias and due to the ventral medial circuits of the brain, you're not going to be your best advocate. 
go to your wise group of core friends, people who are willing at times to call you out, but are also people who are compassionate and wise and see, offer it to them and see how they reflect it back. That's why the Buddha said it's important for all people, why the fundamental um, foundation of healing in the Buddhist past is Kalyanamita, a group of wise spiritual friends. So in our meditation, we are going to practice being with a painful interpersonal experience without adding the negative interpretation that causes all the suffering. And then we're going to practice adding a positive interpretation that allows us to move on in a beneficial way rather than a negative interpretation. So thanks for listening. I hope something in that talk was of interest. And now for those of you who feel up to a little practice, just find the most comfortable position you can. It can be seated. It could be lying down. You could slunk down into a couch. You could do whatever you want. And so closing my eyes. I like closing my eyes. It makes it easier to bring my awareness to my internal experience. And let's just take a few of those deep, restorative breaths where we just feel the breath expand the belly and then inflate the chest. And then when that breath reaches its apex, not pushing it out, but gently, slowly releasing it. And feeling as we release the breath, all of the muscle tension and contraction and any tension, especially in the front of the body being released. And so this time, let's breathe into and just imagine the breath is going into the back and not only softening, expanding the belly, but that the back is being inflated with the breath energy. And then the breath energy moves up to the upper back and to the neck and shoulders. And just when you reach the apex, just release the breath and just feel your shoulders dropping and all those involuntary muscle groups in the back, if you can just influence them to be released a little bit, just creating a body where the energy moves up and down without any obstruction, impingements, if you can cultivate a body that where you can feel the breath energy moving up and down without interruption, then you can 
create a safe container to feel your feelings without adding all those pernicious stories. One of the ways that the pernicious interpretations that cause suffering arise is when we have bodies that clench and contract against the energy moving through it. So we want to have a body where the breath just moves up and down, the energy of the breath. So just see if you can cultivate a breath where you just feel a gentle, with the in-breath, like a plant or flower reaching towards the sun. And then with the out breath, just the release and the relaxation, energy moving up and down through the torso without anything blocking it. And if you feel in this unhurried, very long, unforced breath, the full inhalations and the very long release of the exhalation. If you feel anything struggling against it, tight, contracted, just breathe into and just whisper, it's all right, relax, let go. Just encourage your body to release to the energy moving through it. The more your breath moves effortlessly through your body, the more you can be with your feelings, both positive and negative. After all the different events in life, and if you can be with your feelings without adding the reactive cravings and all the negative self-interpretations, then almost miraculously, so much of the stress and suffering in life begins to dissipate. So we'll just sit here for a while quietly. And just practice bringing your attention back again and again each time you wind up going into the story of thoughts and memories, the inner virtual reality or movie theater of the mind where all the fantasies and preoccupations and images pop up. And just each time you get caught up in those thoughts, just return to the present. That's so much easier than it sounds. It just means connect with any real sensation going on in your body. Find the breath again or find the feeling of your 
body resting on the couch or chair or your back on the floor, on the yoga mat or the bed. Hear the sounds around you. The doorway to presence is nothing other than the body and the sensory world. It's everywhere. And even if your mind wanders a hundred times, that's fine. That means you'll have a hundred times you bring it back, a hundred little moments of awakening from the daydream of excessive thinking.
Hopefully you've found a greater capacity to be with just energy moving through your body. Taking a few more breaths just to practice this invaluable capacity to allow the body to move fluidly with the breath, with any other movements without contracting or tightening or feeling any part cut off. So opening up the chest, the heart center. See if you can breathe in such a way that you feel both the belly and then the heart center open up and expand without any constriction. And then as you release, the energy just flows just as naturally down. The more fluidly the body breathes, the more fluidly emotions and feelings move through it. So now you're invited to, if you'd like to move on, to visualize some recent interpersonal experience that felt like it went poorly. Some could be an outright conflict or something that was more subtle, an unexpected negative look or a lack of warm regard from someone. Just let your mind, without any planning, bring up any, I don't want to say necessarily contentious, but challenging interpersonal experience. And just hold the experience and even if it happened a while ago, just turn your attention to the area where you felt your body breathing, the belly, the chest, all the way up to the throat and face, the facial cranial muscles. And then just ask, where you hold the image, not the whole story, just the image that representing this interpersonal event. It could be just a negative look on a friend's face or a family member's face or a co-worker's face or a loved one's expression or just ask, what do I need to feel? What do I need to feel? Just take your time just asking, how do I feel about this? And see if you Notice anything appearing It might be tightness, it might be shuddering, might be a feeling of energy moving back to the pit of your stomach. It could be just sadness in the eyes and face. We try to just create an a safe container for the feelings where Nothing needs to be cut off. Whether it's mild or intense, 
whether it feels slightly numbed or like a kick to the stomach, whatever. Just be able to be with the feeling, but the practice is not to add anything on top of it. No story, no outrage, no self-pity or self-blame. We're just being with the feelings and that's it. As the Buddha said, feelings are the weak link in the chain. It's where suffering can be cut off. We can't stop the feelings, but if we can stop the feelings to create all the interpretations and beliefs and cravings and resistance, all the flurry of mental activity that follows, we can be with challenging experiences without making them unbearable. So carve out a little space. Just allow that initial physical response to this unpleasant event. And then we could ask ourselves, what would be the the next way I would interpret this? What kind of story have I been adding about this event? Have I been blaming them or blaming myself? Have I just been launching into stories of unfairness, victimization? Just being with the experience and then noting what is the way I normally interpret such events? How do I add that second dart of suffering? And if we did this at home, we could spend longer just noting the consequences of this initial interpretation, the unfairness, the sense of guilt or shame or outrage or the inner speeches. But then we can dispute or put aside all of those normal interpretations and just get creative and ask, how can I interpret this event in a way that doesn't cause any more despair. Now, at first that might sound difficult, but I'll give you some clues. The first being, remind yourself that this is not about you. No matter how disappointing, 
experience, remember that variations of this are occurring in countless, numerous, numberless people in all directions, all across the world. that no one goes through life without difficult interpersonal experiences. And that it's from these events we develop resilience if we don't use it as a sledgehammer to whack ourselves over the head with. Another interpretation is no matter how damaged any interpersonal relationship or friendship can get, we are no longer living the way our ancestors did 120,000 years ago, where there literally weren't other people to connect with. It may feel challenging, but that's just the feeling. Allow the feeling to be there and pass. And then remind ourselves that we're not limited to the only having eight or 10 people that our ancestors did. And finally, bring to mind a member of our Kalyanamita, our group of supportive, wise individuals, or anyone who we can turn to for care or attention. and ask them in our minds how they would interpret this experience for us. What would they want us to know?
So now you're encouraged to very slowly open your eyes, let go of all the reflections we've been doing. And now we'll be reconnecting Thank you for your practice.